you open your Bibles to Psalms 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and, it, and its leaves does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why does the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you will perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Well, thank you, Will. Just to let y'all know, um, I asked Will last week to read two chapters, two full psalms, and uh, this morning I even tried to give him an out. Oh, you may be seated, sorry. <laughs> I even tried to give him an out because he was tired from camp, and he said, no, I got it. So thank you, Will, for reading two full psalms. You did great. Um, it is an honor to be able to preach God's Word this morning in front of a uh, congregation who loves Him, worships Him together, and desires to study His Word. So it's an honor to be here today. Um, before we dive in, um, let me invite you to pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, we thank you that your word is living and active. We thank you that your word gives life. Um, nothing I say, nothing I do, um, no eloquent speech um, will bring people from death to life or open their eyes to your goodness, um, but only you, your word, and uh, the power of the Holy Spirit will do that. So through your word now, um, teach us what we know not. Give us what we have not and make us what we are not. We love you, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to invite you to turn with me to those very two psalms that we read earlier, Psalm 1 and 2. And while you're turning there, I want to ask a question. Have you ever, just for fun, decided to go driving through um, a really wealthy neighborhood. Like you know, you know this neighborhood is different than all the others. There's probably a gate with a security guard when you first drive into it. All the houses like are obscured by bushes. And me and Sarah li love to do this and we call it driving out of our tax bracket because that's way out of there. But um, no, we love doing that. And then almost in every neighborhood that we've seen, you get to the very back and there's, like I said, the hedges that obscure the house. You can't really see this house, but there's a gate at the front of the driveway. And it is a very nice gate. Like it might have those cool lions on each side of it. 
you know, you know what I'm talking about. You've seen it, the wrought iron gate. And you know when you see that gate, if that gate is that amazing, how amazing is this house that's behind it, right? So the gate shows you what, you, what to be expecting on the other side when you're able to see this house. That is um, how Psalm 1 and 2 are treated with the rest of the book. Uh, both chapters are called the two pillars of the gate that leads us into the Psalms. Um, so they set the stage for the rest of the book. Everything we will be studying the rest of the summer, these set the stage for that. Um, and it starts it off r- with a really big way. Um, just right off the get-go in the first chapter, it, it, it gives us a clear distinction. And we're going to see what that distinction is. God's Word gives us a clear distinction. So when I read this chapter, when I read the first psalm, um, it makes me think of like a boxing match or an MMA match. Now, don't ask me anything about boxing. Don't ask me anything about MMA because I can't tell you fighters. I can't tell you stats. I can't tell you even what the rules are most of the time. But one thing I, that sticks out to me every time is at the beginning, they really know how to grab your attention and separate the two fighters. You know, in this corner, standing at five foot 10, 150 pounds for some reason, it says awesome fighter. And then in the other corner, so it separates the two fighters, right? So that's kind of how I view this. So there's a clear distinction between two different men that we see in this. So let's meet one of the men. Let's meet the righteous man. Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of waters that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. All right, so we're introduced to one side, this, this righteous man who, no matter what's going on around him, he does not walk in the way of the wicked, doesn't sit in the seat of sinners. He, he doesn't do any of this, right? He is separate from the world. And not only that, we see that this righteous man delights in the law of the Lord. Not in the way of the wicked, but delights in God's law. And he meditates on it day and night. Every single day and night, this man is meditating on God's law. And then this is how it describes this man because of this. He's like a tree planted by streams of waters that yields its fruit in its seasons. You see the life of this this person because he is planted in God, in His Word, um, He is life. He, he is full of life, and we know this by the fruit He bears, right? So this is the righteous man on one side. Now, let's meet the other side. In this corner of the ring, we see the wicked man. Verse 4, The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So everything we see described of this righteous man quickly separates him by saying, the wicked are not so. Everything that was said about the righteous man, the wicked are the complete opposite, right? It's not like, well, you can be, you know, kind of 
this righteous man over here, and, and you can be this, this kind of wicked man over here. No, there's this clear distinction, right? Um, this guy doesn't participate. The righteous man doesn't participate in the acts of the wicked. The wicked man does participate. You can't stand in the way of sinners and not stand in the way. It doesn't work that way. You can't run headfirst into the ocean and stay dry, right? Like there's no separation, or there is a big separation between the two. So the book begins by separating, by showing the qualifications of what it looks like to be a righteous man. So just as there's a clear distinction between the differences of these two men, there's a very clear distinction of their ultimate destinations in verse 6. For it says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I love that word, know. Um, my Hebrew professor um, thought this was really funny to teach it this way. Uh, the word know in Hebrew is the word yada. So if you ever hear someone say, yada, 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 he's saying, I know, I know, I know. That's all that means. It's, it's Hebrew. Yada, so that word no doesn't just mean like head knowledge. It has the idea of caring about something and directing something. It has the idea of a parent who knows their child so well and cares so much for them that they will guide them along the way. That's what this says when it says the Lord knows the way of the righteous. It's the idea of the Lord caring for them and guiding them along the way. But... The way of the wicked will perish, is what it says. So it is a good thing for the Lord to know you. Um, I always think when um, I have students who say, man, the Lord sees everything I do, like, that's terrifying. Well, you don't want the opposite. In Matthew uh, 7, 23, it says, Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, right? So it's a good thing for the Lord to know you, to love you, to care for you. And we see that in this distinction between the righteous man and the wicked man. So my question to you is, in these two distinctions, where do you fall? Take, take Christ out of the equation. Let's focus on just the requirements right now. Do you keep the law of the Lord perfectly every single day? Do you meditate on His Word day and night, every single day, not miss a single time? Like, where do you fall in this requirement, right? See, if we're not careful and, and we just read Psalm 1, it can turn very quickly into a moralistic lesson. Do this, don't do that, etc. Very quickly, we could distract ourselves being like, yeah, I'm okay at that. Good. Check. Box is done. I'm good. I'm the righteous man. I'm good. But that is not the point of this. Um, as it said, as we look at one pillar of this gateway, we, we got to have the other one we got to have Psalm 2. While Psalm 1 points us to the individuals, Psalm 2 points us to how these two roles play out in the whole world, right? So very quickly, as we see in the next chapter, we see where we fall. God's Word reveals what we naturally desire. So if you think you, you fall without Christ on the side of the righteous man, take a look at these first few verses, verses 1 through 3. Of chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. 
So we see this, and it talks about the nations and the peoples. You know what those two words mean in Hebrew? Nations and peoples. That's all it means. It means everyone, right? What it's saying is all the peoples of the earth, their natural tendency is to plot in vain against God. You might not think this, like, yeah, let me just plot against God. Are there times when you say, oh, his word says to do this? I'm probably not going to do that because it's uncomfortable. And, you know, I'm probably better off over here doing this. Like disobeying God, right? That's, that's our way of, of plotting against him in vain, right? So it says all the people of the earth are this way. We, we fall into the category of the wicked man, right? Are y'all following with me on this? Psalm 1 does not say that we are the righteous man. Psalm 1 points to only one righteous man, and we'll see that in a minute. So verse 3 talks about how uh, they, they um, plot together, they rebel together, they plan this, this big event where they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The idea of that verse is all of humanity sees God's law and God's rule as chains or yokes that burden us down, right? And they think, we know better than God. We, yeah, what I, my sin, yeah, I'm good. I know better than God. I'd be a better God than God. That's what it's saying the whole world is saying in this. Um, I don't know about y'all, but I love ice cream. Who likes ice cream? Okay. Oh, man, very big amount. Sarah can tell you this. My absolute favorite flavor of ice cream, plain Jane vanilla. Uh, yeah, I heard your reactions. That's, that's my wife's reaction, too. Plain Jane vanilla. Whenever we would go to an ice cream shop, I would say, yeah, I know what's best for me. Vanilla is the best flavor ever. That's what I'm going to get. Saw that amen. I like that. I thought that, and sometimes I still think that. It depends on my mood. Until my wife introduced me to this ice cream. It's Ben and Jerry's. And the flavor, the name's kind of gross. It's called fish food. Have you had fish food before? This ice cream is vanilla and chocolate with caramel swirls in it. It has these rich, 100% fudge, fish-shaped pieces all through the ice cream. Well, I thought I knew what was best, and I thought vanilla was the best flavor. My wife quickly changed my mind by introducing me to this amazing ice cream that now I think, uh, I think I probably have that more than any other ice cream, but that's beside the point. I probably shouldn't have it. Well, I thought I knew what was best. I, I thought, I, I was like, yes, there's no competition. Vanilla's the best. My eyes were quickly open to what was true, right? She introduced me to what was true. That's how the people of the earth view the laws of God. They're like, I know what's best. My vanilla ice cream, what I want to do with my life, I know better than God. That's best. But in reality, God's law, God's word, being obedient to it, gives us life. It's freeing. But we view it as chains. Naturally, that's our natural pull, is to view it as chains. So God's word reveals what we naturally desire. But it doesn't end there. It, it does the separation. It shows where we fall. But then it tells us that God's word proves that God's authority is definite in our lives. 
I love God's response here. Bear with me through this because it gets kind of harsh, but trust me, it ends with hope. It says this, after that response of these kings and the people of the earth, verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will say to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now we see these little tiny kings of the earth plotting in vain against the sovereign ruler God, right? And God laughs at them. It's like the idea of a, of a kid who's angry at their parents saying, oh, I'm going to do what I want. And the parent just grabs them by the arm and say, no you're, no, you're not. Like it's that image. Like these little kings are rebelling against God. And then he says, no, my authority is true. My authority, my will will happen. He says, as for me, I have set my king. I have set my king to rule. He can ask me, and I can easily give him all the nations. He said, his authority is true, and his authority is definite. And we see that authority come to fruition through this king, through this anointed one, through this son. So our question is, who is this anointed one? Who is this king? Who is the begotten son in this passage. Now, throughout the history of Israel, this psalm would be used as a coronation song when a new king would be put in place in Israel. And this would be speaking of that king, and sometimes through the dark ages of Israel when they had bad kings, I, I would imagine, and I think Philip talked about this as well, I would imagine this was done kind of sarcastically when they would have to read this at the coronation of a king that they knew was bad. Oh, the, son, the God's anointed, only son, okay, yeah. But this was historically pointing to the king of Israel. But ultimately, as we know, as we can look back, it was pointing to an ultimate king, the ultimate man in the line of David, who would be that king to fulfill this. So who is the king described here? Who is the king that has all authority? We see him as a righteous king. We know this because while God's laughing at these other kings, he looks at this king and says, Ask me anything and it's yours. I will make the nations your heritage. This king has God's ear, right? He must be righteous to have God's ear. This king fulfills that righteous requirement that we see in Psalm 1. So to know who this king is, we need to let Scripture answer the questions of Scripture, right? So turn with me to Hebrews uh, chapter 1, um, and we're going to look at the first few verses. It says this. You're going to see some familiar language here. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And then skip down to verse 8. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So we see very quickly that this son is talking about, it's really the whole point of the book of Hebrews, is pointing to Jesus Christ. Spoiler alert. It's talking about Jesus here. I don't know if y'all knew that about the Bible, but most of the Bible is about Jesus. So didn't want to spoil it too early. I wanted y'all to really, really build up and get there. But this righteous king that we see here, this only begotten son, is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is this righteous king. Jesus is this king that, will, that is set up on his throne and has absolute authority. And we know head knowledge of Jesus' authority and his kingship by verses like in Matthew 28, verse 18, the beginning of the Great Commission, when Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But sometimes we don't really think about King Jesus and his authority. Um, oftentimes we think of pacifist Jesus. We think of meek and mild baby Jesus. We think of Jesus who is accepting of everyone. That's kind of what our culture decides to think of Jesus. Um, but Revelation 19 Verses 11 through 16 gives us a different picture of who Jesus truly is. Um, starting in verse 11, it says this. This is when Jesus comes back in all his power. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and his name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in white linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Call back to Psalm 2. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So we see a quick image of Jesus as king when he returns. And I will spare you the details of what follows with that. It's a little gruesome, but let me just tell you, um, he wins. Jesus wins. There is only one king left standing and it is not the kings of the earth, right? So feel free to read that on your own. But we see Jesus in all his power, all his might as the king, right? And if the psalm that we've been reading ends with verse 9, says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. If it ended right there, doesn't look too good for us, right? It doesn't. But like I said, bear with me because this psalm ends in hope. Not only do we see the separation of the righteous and the wicked, not only do we understand that, that we naturally are that wicked man, and not only do we see God and all his authority through King Jesus can easily destroy us at a snap of a finger. We see that God shows his mercy in that he invites us to make a decision. 
Starting in verse 10, it says this, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Then there's this sentence. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So there's a a decision to be made here, right? What's the point of these two pillars of the gateway into the Psalms? It's not telling us we're, we're naturally the righteous man, there's these wicked people over here. No. It's setting us up to, to understand rightly who we are, understand rightly who God and His anointed, Jesus, truly is, and, their position, and our position to them. But then it gives us hope. It gives us a call to turn away from our sin and find refuge in Christ. We could never meet the requirements that we see, not only at the beginning of Psalm 1, but all throughout Scripture, we know that there's nothing out of our own power that we could do to meet those requirements. But Jesus, the righteous King, met those requirements on our behalf. And as the writer of a commentary I read said, while there is no refuge from Him, there is only refuge in Him. So Jesus, King Jesus, humbled Himself, lived that perfect life. He became man and lived that perfect life that we couldn't live. He met that righteous requirement on our behalf. In Matthew 5, 48, Jesus said, Be perfect, for your Father in heaven is perfect. Sorry, we failed at that. Every day we fail at that. But Jesus met that requirement on our behalf. But not only that, He took on the punishment that we deserved. All throughout Scripture and in Romans, we see the wages, what we have earned for our sin is death. But Jesus, in His love and His mercy, took on that punishment for us, died on the cross for our sins, said, it is finished. And not only that, He conquered sin and death through His resurrection from the grave, proving Him to be the Son of God. He conquered sin and death, and through Christ... We can be freely, we can be fully, freely, and forever forgiven from all our sins. Christ is that blessed man described. And he invites us to take refuge in him. Through Christ, through taking refuge in him and trusting in his power, from turning from our sin and following Christ, he invites us, he gives us new life, and then he invites us to become this righteous person described here. It's not our righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. If we take refuge in Him, we become that righteous man. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says, He became sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So God's Word clearly tells us to turn and repent from our sins, put our faith and trust in Jesus, find refuge in Him, and follow Him with our lives. So what decision will you make today? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Um, We thank You for the truth of these Psalms. 
um, that while we were wicked and dead in our sin, Christ, the righteous King, lived for us and died for us. And that we are invited to take refuge in Him, follow Him, and become righteous through His righteousness alone. We thank You for the gift of Your Son. We thank You for the grace You have shown us. We thank You for this good news of salvation. In Christ's name, amen.